First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Donna Deegan takes the lead in a poll of likely voters ahead of Jacksonville's mayoral election. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, the state of play in the Jacksonville mayor's race as voters are already casting their ballots. 549-2937, let us know who'll get your vote. Then later, speaking of voting, a look at ongoing challenges to the ballot in Georgia. We'll tell you about it. And don't miss our ticket giveaway later in the show. We'll tell you who it's for. Got to keep listening, though. All of that ahead, but first this hour, a new poll out this week shows Democratic candidate Donna Deegan with an 18-point lead in a crowded field for Jacksonville mayor. UNF's polling lab finds Deegan is the choice of 37 percent of registered Duval County voters. Republican Daniel Davis comes in second with 20 percent. However, the lead pollster cautions many voters out there are still undecided. With more on the mayor's race and some other high-profile issues, we're pleased to welcome Mike Bender. He runs UNF's Public Opinion Research Lab. Mike, always good to see you. Good morning, Melissa. Glad to be here. And voters, let us know who gets your vote for mayor. Give us a call, 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax. Okay, so with some people already voting early uh, and voting by mail, You've got a really good poll out now showing Donna Deegan way out in front. What are the numbers showing? Yeah, and this is just for the March election, so somebody needs to get to 50 plus one in order to actually win the mayor's seat. But we have her at 37 and Daniel Davis behind at 20 with a, a few other folks down at you know, 8, 7, 6 with, uh, the, with some of the other candidates. But the one thing I want to caution, yes, this is exciting, this is fascinating, 30% of Republicans don't know who they're going to vote for. Mm. And... You know, it's likely that these people are going to vote. They have a voting history. They've voted in some of these weird March elections or, you know, maybe the council elections in December and February of last year. Uh, so they they're probably going to show up and they're probably going to vote for a Republican. They just maybe haven't decided which one it is yet. Haven't decided whether it's Daniel Davis, Al Ferraro, who's on the city council, or Leanna Cumber, who's also on the city council. Or Frank Kiesler. Or Frank Kiesler. Yeah, let's get them all in there. Okay, uh, Democrat Audrey Gibson, former Senate Minority Leader in Tallahassee, she's at 7%. And as you said, Mike, we're almost certainly headed to a May runoff election because nobody is clearing the field. Yeah, this is not going to get to 50%. You have multiple Republicans, multiple Democrats, an NPA in there as well. Uh, This is going to be a top two runoff in May, and then I think we'll see a a more traditional style Democrat versus Republican in all likelihood type of uh, campaign style. Okay, now you did uh, poll uh, head to head. Uh, Let's talk about these. Uh, Donna Deegan against Daniel Davis in a hypothetical head to head matchup beats Davis 48 percent to 39 percent. Uh, she gets 51% of the vote against Al Ferraro, 53% of the vote against Leanna Cumber. Yeah, and this is, I think, you know, part of when you see in the overall race, Cumber and Ferraro not polling particularly well, when it gets to a head-to-head, folks that aren't going to vote for them are maybe less inclined to. So Deegan does really well there. But even though she's ahead of Davis by nine points in a head-to-head, there's still some undecideds. And the one thing I'll caution is, to this point, we haven't seen a lot of negative campaigning geared toward Donna. That's going to change on March 22nd. The other thing I'll say is, on on Donna's favor here, she's getting 10% of the Republican vote in our poll, and Davis is only getting 3% of the Democratic vote. So if you have a close turnout, D versus R, which we expect, you know, that's a big advantage for Deegan. Now, can Donna Deegan, if she makes it to the runoff, hold that slice of Republican voters against whoever her likely Democratic opponent, or excuse me, her likely Republican opponent is? That's a great question. Will they come home to the Republican Party or will they cross lines and vote for her? You have to wonder how much damage has been done in this primary amongst some of those leading candidates. Uh, I I find it hard to imagine Leanna Cumber standing next to Daniel Davis at a campaign rally. Uh, I, I don't know, but I, I, you know, some of the attacks on Al Ferraro from the Davis camp 
were kind of stinging. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that this party is going to come together and be kumbaya-ish. That being said, you know, the vast majority of Republican voters are probably still going to vote for Davis. Five four nine two nine three seven. And so often in these local races, it comes down to turnout. The local Republican Party has a well-oiled turnout machine. They have a better track record of turning their voters out. Can yeah. the Democrats turn enough voters out for Donna Deegan uh, in 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 a, a playing field that's really still tilted towards Republicans? The irony is there's six percentage points more of registered Democrats in this that's area right. than there are Republicans. But historically and consistently, Republicans do do a little bit better getting their voters out. And that is meaningful. You know, I will say Donna has been active and on the ground campaigning all over the city for the better part of a year now. Can that can that turn into people showing up to vote, especially with some of the new vote by mail requirements that required voters to re-up their mail for this election? You know, very few relative to previous elections have gotten their mail ballots. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in this March election. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what a lot of people will be watching is, can Donna Deegan, who ha- enjoys this incredible name recognition uh, after years of being a local news anchor and then setting up a, a marathon to support breast cancer patients, can that help her beat the Republican machine, which is a lot more money and a lot better organization? And can her message of let's turn the page on corruption in Jacksonville, can that peel off uh, uh, enough Republicans to give her a winning edge? I think those are the big questions. They're they're huge questions. I don't I can't sit here today and tell you the answers to them. But I can say I think that the primary and the ads that have been going back and forth between Davis and Cumber have perhaps primed Jacksonville in a way in the past that that anti-corruption message maybe we haven't been ready for. Uh, I certainly think that there is a window there for a positive campaign that has potential solutions Mm -hmm. as opposed to just, you know, Dirty Dan and liberal Leanna uh, than the kind of the name things that we've seen lately. Leanna Cumber has spent millions uh, in this primary race, very well-funded candidate, to only garner about 5% of the vote. Let's talk about her factor in this race, because typically you don't see a really well-funded Republican candidate in this city going against the favorite son, going against the preferred person which is Daniel Davis among many of the donors and power brokers. Yeah, it's it's a kind of upstart outsider style campaign, a little internal battle within the Republican Party. And while that money that she has spent may not have turned into support at the polls, there's still a lot of Republicans that are undecided. So she certainly can get some of those. Uh, but I will say she's kept Daniel Davis at 20 percent in a poll less than three weeks in front of an election. And that's that's saying something. Um, so mm-hmm. I, the money has been spent. You know, at least it's worked in keeping his positives down. Lots of tweets about the mayor's race and give us a call. Let us know who'll get your vote at 549-2937. Dave tweets the show. Do you poll on issues of importance as multiple choice questions? Is the order randomized among participants. How do you account for priming and anchoring and presenting the question? So he's wondering about your methodology at the Public Opinion Research Lab at UNF. The short answer is yes to all of those things, <laughs> depending upon the circumstance. Uh, so when we ask most important problem, we rotate those. Uh, we do, you know, crime was the the big winner this time, as it has been usually with 37 uh, percent. But we do, we are careful to get the vote choice questions out of the way first before we start asking about policy questions. And we do rotate the policy questions in their order as well to help alleviate some framing issues. On Facebook, Scott says, Mike Binder is the man crunching numbers and bringing data to its knees. So (laughs) there you go, Mike. Outstanding. (laughs) Okay. Uh, More of your calls in a bit at 549-2937 as we talk about the mayor's race. But you didn't just ask about that. You asked, this is interesting stuff. You said, uh, what is the most important problem facing Jacksonville? 37% of the voters said crime. Public safety still at the top of local voters' concerns. And let's be honest, that's the biggest chunk of our city budget, right? So that's what we do here. 46% of Republicans, but still 27% of Democrats. So that's the leading issue for both parties, uh, NPAs as well. So this, it's an issue that hasn't been solved. I don't know that it's an issue that ever gets solved, uh, but but clearly, uh, folks feel like we have we're not moving in the right direction on that. And the mayoral candidates 
have had uh, opportunities at various forums to talk about that, what they would do to bring down crime in the city. You can go to all of their campaign websites for more. You can go to jagstoday.org for a voter guide on where they stand on the issues. And they have different perspectives on these issues, too. They do. Absolutely. Now, you also asked, uh, where does uh, you, where do you, the voters, stand on removing Confederate monuments from public spaces? This is interesting. A very slim majority in Jacksonville says they oppose removing Confederate monuments. Yeah, this is an issue that obviously has been in Jacksonville's lexicon for a little while now. And we've polled on it several times before, and it's in that kind of 50-50 range. And what's interesting about this, as opposed to maybe some other issues, most of these opinions are pretty baked in. It's mostly strongly support or strongly oppose. And, you know, I think we've seen that play out in the public debate. Uh, and I think that's why we still are dealing with this. And it looks like we're going to be dealing with this for a while longer. Yeah, uh, that that is a really interesting result. And it, it certainly does also explain why the city council has not moved forward on this issue, despite having committees and... Uh, the mayor pledging that the monuments would come down, they haven't moved forward. When, when 69, 69% of Republicans strongly oppose removing the monuments and you have a heavily Republican council, yeah, that makes a lot of sense why they haven't come down. That's right. Now, you also asked about, speaking of Republicans, whether Jacksonville should host the 2028 Republican National Convention. We are being considered. Nearly 60% said, yes, let's do it. That That's interesting. And you talked to voters in this poll about the Jaguars. Strong approval for the Jaguars, especially after their winning season. However, more than 60% of the voters really oppose using public funds to pay for stadium renovations. Yeah, and that's really a, a key piece to this. That's the big public ask that's coming down the pike that the next mayor is going to have to deal with. What happens when the Jaguars come hat in hand asking for hundreds of millions of dollars to redo the stadium? And even though we asked in the stadium, do you think it's important in this question, in this survey, excuse me, do you think it's important to have an NFL team in Jacksonville? And 53% said very important. Another 30% said at least somewhat important. So people want the Jaguars in town, but they don't want to have to foot the bill mm-hmm. for a billionaire stadium. And, and I think when we're seeing the cost and value of these franchises with the, with the former Redskins, Washington football team commanders being on the market, being talked about $6 billion plus, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's concerns, and rightly so, from taxpayers about where their money goes. Okay, taxpayers and voters out there, give us a call. Our guest this morning is Mike Binder. He runs UNF's polling operation. It's Public Opinion Research Lab. Let us know your thoughts about the mayor's race and some of these other big issues. 549-2937. Peter on the South Side. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Yes, hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, a uh, question and then some comments. So my question is, why in heaven's name are the sheriff and the law enforcement officers allowed to have their picture taken in advertising for political races? That's something mm-hmm. that's irked me for a while. Secondly, um, how effective would Donna Deegan be as a mayor when the city council is so divided along party lines? Thank you. Okay. Let's take those questions one by one, beginning with candidates appearing on television in ads with law enforcement officers, sometimes the sheriff wearing their uniforms. That has been a bone of contention for some time. They're really not supposed to do that, but they do it anyway. And they are legally allowed to endorse other candidates, have their free speech rights protected in order to do that, assuming they're not on duty. There's some language that's interpreted for the sheriff, who's theoretically on duty 24 hours a day, uh, that enables them to do those sorts of things. But if you're rank and file, theoretically, you're not supposed to be on duty. Mm-hmm. And and the wearing of the uniform in the ads, uh, that's not for that's not it's legal not, by not, statute, is it? It's not legal by statute, but it's not illegal by statute either. And yeah, there's a gray area that they take right. advantage of. Yes, and it works, doesn't it? It's yes. effective. I mean, there, there now, if if you're a concerned citizen, there is a new task force based out of Tallahassee that investigates election related crimes, uh, and if 
you know, maybe you take your concerns to them. Five four nine two nine three seven. More of your calls in a bit. What about his other question? Uh, if a Democrat is elected mayor, say it's Donna Deegan, how would she work with a Republican-dominated city council? That's a great question, uh, and that's a that's a yet to be determined type of answer. Uh, you know, she has worked with a lot of different people across a lot of different uh, spectrums politically, particularly running her foundation. Uh, I think she'd be able to work with them now. You know, what kind of policies will she input? It is a strong mayor form of government, so they do have a, a lot of ability to work outside of council. Uh, but no, her ability to build bridges across council is is, in, is a don't know. That's a big question mark. Five four nine two nine three seven. Mark on the west side. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. You know, I'm really leaning towards uh, Donna Deegan. I've you know lived in Jacksonville all my life. I've met her several times. I've run and walked in one of her marathons. Um, but I'm really concerned about her uh, feelings towards the uh, Jaguars. I'm one of these horrible one issue one issue voters this time, and I'm very concerned that. Uh, uh, she will just, you know, she's obviously a big supporter. She's talked about having season tickets for all her life. Um, you know, I'm just really worried that she would give away the checkbook to uh, to Shad Khan. And, uh, you know, she's, there was a News for Jack story a couple of weeks ago that uh, she sort of spent two weeks telling, uh, two paragraphs saying that um, uh, she's very concerned about that and she really wants to be a strong negotiator. But I think her last sentence said, uh, we really want need the Jacks, the Jaguars in Jacksonville, which is fine. Uh, you know, if you if you want it, that's okay, but uh, not at the cost of a billion dollars. You know, and I, uh, regarding your poll, I've talked to people all the time about the Jaguars and this billion dollar stadium we're going to probably be faced with, and uh, they all say the same thing, kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, we really need the Jaguars, and yeah, that's it. And then when I say, are you kidding me? A billion dollars? They all seem to change their mind. So. I think when you see the question in black and white on a piece of paper, you know, intellectually, you say, yeah, I like the Jaguars and check, you know, no problem. But when you really say, you know, schools, infrastructure, public safety, that kind of thing, they sort of maybe do a double take and say, yeah, maybe you're right. You know, so but I'm concerned about that and, and her willingness to just sort of give Shad Khan a blank check. All right, Mark. Thanks. So as your poll showed. The majority of the voters do not want more taxpayer money going towards stadium improvements. This is a tricky issue, though, because no public official wants to be known as the one that lost an NFL team. Either. Sure. Right. And 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 the caller is right. Right. Like there's a lot of folks that love the Jags, but don't want to pony up that kind of money. And, and that's totally understandable. Now, the question is, you know, are any of those candidates the ones that are going to say, you know, beat it? Yeah, uh, probably, probably not. Probably not. And, and, and that's all of them. Right. And and the question then becomes, OK, which one of those is least likely to give away the entire city budget <laughs> to have a stadium redone? And and the answer is, I don't know that. I mean, they they all have a lot of them say some things. A lot of there's a lot of gray area there in a lot of their statements about this because it's one of those issues where voters don't want to give the money up, but don't want to lose them. Five four nine two nine three seven. Clyde in Riverside. Clyde in Riverside. Good morning, Clyde. Hey, good morning, Melissa. I was wondering if the uh, UNF pollster had taken into consideration in his analysis the endorsement by the Republican candidates for president, who appear to have, have one has endorsed one candidate, one has endorsed the other, and whether or not Trump has endorsed the city council president running for mayor. What? I haven't heard that. I don't know about that, Clyde, but uh, you know what? You, uh, going beyond local politics, you are going to be running a statewide poll on the Republican potential candidates for president in 2024, how Florida voters feel about Trump and DeSantis. Yeah, we're in the field right now. That'll be out next week. Republicans, Trump, DeSantis, and, and a slate of other possibilities as well, along mm -hmm. with some of the other, the other big issues. But endorsements are meaningful. And I have zero doubt that folks on the Republican side would love an endorsement from our sitting governor. Uh, and, I don't uh, yeah, know that you, that's you, coming. Yeah, but. you, you kind of wonder, would he get involved in a mayor's race? Say we go to a May runoff, would Governor DeSantis endorse, say, 
a Daniel Davis uh, in, in a runoff election. Would that happen to give him an edge? I don't know. We'll have to and, see. And, you know, what are some of the internal Tallahassee politics behind some of those endorsements with people running campaigns and their spouses and speakers of the House races in six years, too? Lots of calls. It's 549-2937. On Facebook, Tom says Donna Deegan is ahead because people prefer problem solving to mudslinging, he says. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, the flyers have been going out all across town into people's mailboxes. I think about 1% have already voted by mail, which is interesting. The election is March 21st. It's in 21 days. Do you think that the turnout might be a little higher than average for a March mayoral election, given the intensity of the rhetoric and, uh, I don't know, uh, just the in- unprecedented amounts of money that have been spent on this mayor's race? You know, obviously, I think turnout's going to look different than it did in 19 when there wasn't a Democrat on the ballot for mayor. Uh, so I think we're going to look closer to 2015 numbers. And, you know, if, I've, if, you had, if, if I had to put an under over, I'd probably be at that 32 percent number mm. would kind of be my line. More than that, I think would be really good, which is you know, a sense of democracy, probably not that great. Not at all, that the next mayor is going to be chosen by less than half of eligible voters. Pretty right. pretty weak. And depending upon what that runoff looks like, you know, what other races are on the ballot, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, not great. Five four nine two nine three seven, James in Riverside. Go ahead, James. Hi, I was calling to comment about how absurd I think it is that Shad Khan and the Jaguars are looking for public funds for a new stadium. Uh, he's he's obviously a multi-billionaire. Uh, the idea that Jacksonville taxpayers would pay any portion of a new stadium for the Jaguars to play eight or seven home games a year, considering they play one in London every year is just absurd. Obviously, Shad Khan wants to move the Jaguars to London. I don't think the taxpayers should get in his way. Additionally, I'd like to comment on Donna Donna Deegan's run for mayor. I'm very happy that there's a Democrat on the ballot. She has my vote, and I think Lenny Curry has uh, not not done a great job uh, as his time in mayor. Thanks so much. All right, James. Hey, you know, we should note your poll, Mike, finds 52 percent of the voters do approve of Mayor Curry. So right. he does have a slim majority he, approval. He does. And a lot of the, but a lot of that approval is soft, right? At 38 percent and soft, somewhat approved, 14 percent strongly approved. So a lot of that approval that he has isn't the strongest of full throated endorsements. He is termed out, of course. Uh, and that is why we have this mayor's race. What about what uh, the caller said? Uh, really upset about this potential of the city of Jack's ponying up up to $750 million of public funds. That's your money, everybody, to split the cost of stadium renovations with the Jaguars, which is common in NFL cities, by the way. It varies dramatically. So how Buff- much does it vary? So Buffalo, for example, who's was kind of the oldest stadium and they're they're on the hook to get a new stadium. They got, you know, about 800 million from the state and the city. But New York, ironically, only has one football team, so the state legislature, the Speaker of the House, is from the area, so they kicked in a bunch of money. You know, New York, for example, when they built their stadium 10 or 12 years ago, uh, they financed it just to team owners and personal seat licenses. And mm. Now, granted, there's some you know, tax giveaways for the land and things like that, but there was no dollars kicked in by, by the state or by the local cities. So you can run the full gamut. L- L.A. was almost exclusively done by private dollars. And you see great stadiums all over the place. And whether or not the voters need to be on the hook for that is, is a very different question. Five four nine two nine three seven, Regina in Mandarin. Go ahead, Regina. Good morning. Um, I'd like to ask the poll, and thanks for doing this, Melissa. Um, I'd like to ask the poller, has anyone looked at the independent voters and how they, are, the percentage in Jacksonville and how they would vote because we've talked about Republicans and Democrats and mm-hmm. I second that I'm glad Donna Deegan is running and I'm very very tired of the negative ads and I'll take my answer off the air thank you okay thank you and this is this is the question uh, you know Chris Hand loves loves to talk about the independence I, I have a very different view on the independence than he does one thing yes they're an enormous portion of the electorate 
but they don't show up to vote, generally speaking. They're going to be about 10% of the electorate when they're registered, about a third. So disproportionately, they don't show up. Interestingly, in this poll, RNPAs really mirror the overall outcome. Mm. So RNPAs supported Donna Deegan, 36%. 37% was the overall number. 20% for Davis. 20% was the overall number. So there's a lot of consistency amongst the NPAs and how that mirrors the outcome. Hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of the the Jaguars, uh, a listener emails, uh, please point out that Chad Khan went on the record in December of 2021 committing the Jaguars to staying in town. I think there's some skepticism still as to whether he really means it, uh, at least among some people out there. And the Jaguars, he says, say they will ask for public funding as a form of partnership with the city. So that's how they've couched it. Well, I think that's great. So if we're going to if we're going to be partners as a city, then then if at some point the entity gets sold to a different buyer, the, the, the partner should then reap in some of those sale proceeds. Right. (laughs) <laughs> One might argue that. <laughs> Janice is on the line. Hello, Janice. Go ahead. Hi. Yes. Good morning. I was calling to ask you about the poll results. Did you guys look into the poll results, especially for the property appraisal office? Okay. That's uh, who's in that race. Uh, I want to say it's uh, Fisher jo- against Joyce Morgan. And Danny Becton. And Danny Becton. Yeah, we did. We did poll on the property appraisers race. Uh, we had Joyce Morgan at 43%, Fisher at 16 Beckton at 13 hmm. uh, Now, one thing again, Republicans, because they have the two candidates there, are really undecided. Uh, in fact, 37% of Republicans were undecided. So you can imagine either Fisher or Beckton's going to get the lion's share of those votes. However, we talked about turnout. If Democrats can get a big turnout there, there is a chance Joyce Morgan can start looking at that 50% number. and that, She might have a chance to avoid a runoff. She might have a chance. And again, of course, she's on the council now. On the council former now. Former news anchor, high name recognition. Been in Jacksonville forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. People know her. So, yeah, so that, that's one of those things that turnout could matter. Wow. Okay. Well, it's always fascinating to get your insights. And thank you, as always, for sharing them with our listeners. Great to be here. Thank you. He's Mike Bender. He heads up UNF's Public Opinion Research Lab, and we'll be looking out for his statewide poll in a week or so. Much more still ahead later in the hour, a look at the upcoming Jacksonville Science Festival. But up next. One of the big problems we saw last year was that there were challenges to the eligibility of tens of thousands of voters in the state's largest urban counties. A look at ongoing challenges to casting a ballot to our north in Georgia. We'll be right back. Access to the ballot, it continues to be an issue in the state to our north. For more about voting challenges in Georgia, I spoke with Andrew Garber. He's counsel in the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Andrew, good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us more about how the Brennan Center is fighting back against attempts to purge voters from the rolls in Georgia. Tell us what's the latest on this. So the Brennan Center has been working with a variety of groups locally in Georgia to petition both county election officials and now statewide ones to change the rules um, around mass challenges so that they can be better implemented and more seamless. One of the big problems we saw last year was that there were challenges to the eligibility of tens of thousands of voters in the state's largest urban counties. Um, And while the county boards rightfully rejected the vast majority of these challenges, it took up a lot of time when they were at their busiest preparing for the midterm because there is no statewide system for administering the challenges. Mm. So we've recently sent a letter alongside a couple dozen groups in the state 
asking the State Election Board and Secretary of State's Election Office uh, to create a regulatory framework for how to govern the challenges from start to finish that can be implemented now before the election cycle gets busy so that next year, if we see more challenges and mass challenges, they're able to be handled more consistently. Because what you're arguing is that these challenges are inconsistent, they're often based on unreliable information, and they risk disenfranchising eligible Georgia voters. Do, do we have any idea of how many voters in Georgia have been disenfranchised because of the way different counties are challenging voters and removing names from the rolls? So what I can say there is um, you're right that these challenges are a mechanism for disenfranchising voters. They're also a mechanism for intimidating voters. It can be really scary if you see your name on some sort of government list that is potentially questioning your eligibility to vote. And part of the problem is that the county board, since they have no statewide guidance, were handling how the challenges came in differently. This can be confusing if you're in a different part of the state and the procedure ends up being different. And so it's extremely important that voters and advocates for voters understand what will happen when they're challenged. Mm -hmm. And this is all in response to, as you said, a, a change in Georgia law that allows for unlimited challenges. Has it created chaos in Georgia when it comes to voting? So that change in the law really was an endorsement from the legislature that they uh, were happy to see more people being challenged and all the issues that come with it, including, as you noted, that uh, these challenges are often based on unreliable information, something as simple as comparing a change of address form from the post office with an out-of-date voter registration role. Um, and so that can be a real problem when it means that people are being taken off the roll without strong evidence. Um, or they're simply confused as to why they're on a list and may feel they can't vote as a result. Now, voting in Georgia, of course, is of national interest right now. A grand jury in Georgia has recommended indictments uh, into the Trump administration's alleged attempts to meddle in the voting process in Georgia in the 2020 presidential election. At the same time, a judge has ordered the U.S. Department of Justice to turn over communications with organizations suing Georgia over the state's voting laws. That was a ruling in favor of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He is uh, involved in a legal matter over voting in Georgia. And how important do you see these voting battles in Georgia as relates to access to the ballot in general across the country? Uh, they're very important, um, as they are in, in all states across the country. It's absolutely essential that our, all eligible voters are able to vote freely. They're able to vote conveniently and without fear of reprisal or concern that their ballot won't be counted. And that's why mass challenges are just one of the many uh, concerning issues we see around voting. Um, because if you're not registered to vote, if you think you're not registered to vote even, that's going to be a barrier that prevents you from being able to go to the polls and cast your ballot safely and securely. Right. I mean, the Brennan Center is known for defending every American's right to vote, defending free and fair elections. Your work has gotten ever more urgent in recent years. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how you see your organization really uh, at the center of this this fight. In is a Jacksonville marketing executive. But now Grant Nielsen is out with a science fiction novel and he's got a book signing tonight downtown during Art Walk. 
He joins us now with more about the eyes of Kosa. Good morning. Hi, Melissa. Good to see you. So uh, you're well known around town. You work at New Era Marketing. You're chief creative officer. Not known as an author, though. What what prompted you to write a book? Well, I uh, about a little over a decade ago, I was bolted out of bed. I was I had this very vivid dream, and uh, you know I'm a musician. I've always wished that for years I could wake up and have like a Paul McCartney. Like I woke up with a song in my head. Right. Uh, as it turns out, it was a story, and I leapt out of bed and I ran to the computer and I wrote five chapters of what became this book. And wow. It just was very vivid, and and I tried to capture it while it was fresh. So that's cool. Yeah. So what's the book about? It's kind of a science fiction, dystopian kind of idea. Um, not dissimilar from a lot of the young adult stuff that you might see out on the bookshelves or being turned into movies now. But the it it has a, a slightly more sinister uh, kind of underpinning. So. Are you a science fiction geek? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you've always <laughs> read science fiction. Yeah, and kind of the classic 50s and 60s stuff. So. What do you love about it? It's the ideas. The um, you can really wrestle a huge idea into a, a novel like this. Something that you you have to world build a little bit, and mm-hmm. um, you can explore something that might be tougher to wrestle with unless you get into that stage. Well, tell us about this world of Kosa. Well, without uh, giving too much away, it's a uh, kind of a utopian society. And uh, it's a, the main character is a 16-year-old boy who is, you know, sort of wrestling with adolescence. And he's like, is, it, is, is adolescence this hard for everyone? <laughs> and um, the answer is no. Um, he, is, he is special in some way. And uh, the book takes him on a journey to, for answers. So, and again, without giving all this away... It's billed as a heart-pumping tale of courage and mystery set against a backdrop of futurism and social engineering. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Well, um, also can't give too much there, but, um, you know, we live in a, uh, a society now that really relies heavily on automation. You know, you think about uh, Amazon Prime next-day delivery or same-day delivery, you know, the mechanisms that go into those kinds of structures in our society come with a, I don't want to say a huge cost, I suppose that's true, but they are um, the kind of unfor- unseen in, in our society, these massive, massive structures, these massive systems that we are invisible to most consumers. And I wanted to explore the, you know, where that might go given enough time. I think that dystopian future predictions are so common right now for a number of reasons, but is part of it just the pace of technological change is frightening for people when we start to try to project forward into the future and imagine what a future world might look like when it comes to automation, artificial intelligence, uh, other, other advances that have the potential to be good or bad. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty yeah, well, and, um, you know, I don't think you can really put the genie back in the bottle for a lot of these things either. You know, um, at New Era, we have recently started using AI for commercial design. Um, that's not something I, saw, I thought I would be saying four months ago. That's a brand new, and, and, it, and it, not only is it working, it works well. So it, it yeah, the, to be at the advent of that, any technological change is, mm-hmm. is is exciting but also you know a little nerve-wracking because if a, if uh, ai can do it that means you don't need a human to do it right well and you know i am an artist for most of the you know most of my work day but uh, we make a point to say that when we're using ai we are operators not artists hmm. the ai is the artist we are simply hmm. at the controls okay so tell me about your writing process How, did you get up early every morning and write yeah it, it i need i beyond being busy, the world is just noisy. And so I would uh, either stay up late or, or wake up early. And this was a decade ago. I finished the book 10 years ago. What? I, I just... Why'd you just come out with it now? I don't know. I guess imposter syndrome. I, I just didn't... I've never done anything like this before. And I'm, uh, 
usually by the time I get to publishing something, whether it's music or, you know, commercial artwork or anything, I'm, I know what I'm doing there, but this was a, a new experience for me. So I hired an editor and I first I wrote the book and then I sent it to an editor. He was like, OK, well, this is pretty rough. So we're a lot of, lot of sharp edges on this. So we, we took years and, and crafted it. And then I just sort of sat on it until recently. And, you know, someone close to me said, what are you waiting for? And I said, I don't know. And they were like, no one's going to give you a green light. You just need to have enough confidence to do it or, you know, risk publishing something that isn't great. But I'm happy to say that it's been universally well received. Well, that's great. It's, but I guess it is scary, isn't it? Yeah. To to take the leap. Right. Yeah. Into something that I didn't know whether I had any chops in or not. So. OK. Now, with all of that said, people can come out and meet you tonight and be part of a book signing during Art Walk for the Eyes of Cosa. How can people be part of it? What's happening? Well, um, you know, it's Art Walk downtown tonight. So, uh, you know, every first Wednesday of every month, uh, downtown is is uh, is very vibrant, and there's artists and authors and, and music and food and all sorts of stuff to go do. So, I mean, I might have been there anyways, but now I'll be outside of Chamberlain's Uptown right on North Laura Street. And uh, me and a mm -hmm. few other authors uh, will be out there signing books and, you know, uh, hawking our wares. Uh -huh. um, and, yeah, just trying to, you know, put some ink to paper and see some faces. And uh, I, there's already been a lot of sales of the book, so I'm hoping to also see uh, people who have already received their copy to bring it out. So, And you'll be right out on the sidewalk? Right out on the sidewalk. Yeah, right on uh, Laura Street there. Nice. How yeah. fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. Well, you know, I think this is great. And anytime someone has a successful book, it's a cause for celebration. And thank you, by the way, for autographing my copy. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank I, you for all you do. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I always tell this story. Uh, you always you always want the author to autograph the book. And I, this is why I tell the story. Years ago, I once interviewed an author who no one had ever heard of. This was in the 90s in yeah. Chicago. He came into the television studio alone. I interviewed him about his book. He left. That was the end of it. Never thought about it again. The book was Dreams from My Father, and the author was Barack Obama. So I probably should have gotten him to autograph that book. <laughs> that, that young upstart. <laughs> yeah. I think so, I've heard of him. Yeah. So that's my advice, everybody. <laughs> Always get the author to autograph the book because you really do never know. Yeah. So Grant Nielsen, congratulations. Come Thank see you. him tonight at Artwook. It's the eyes of Cosa. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. In a moment, the Jacksonville Science Festival is coming up this weekend. We'll tell you how you can be part of it and its focus on steam. And yes, we've got a ticket giveaway. Got to keep listening to find out which concert, though. We'll be right back. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. A look at how healthcare providers are helping victims of human trafficking. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. Join me Saturday at 4 for what's health got to do with it, only on WJZT News 89.9 Jacksonville. 
This is Ari Shapiro, host of All Things Considered. By the time you turn on our show in the afternoon, you've probably seen headlines, maybe you've read a tweet, you might have heard a newscast. So we want to tell you more than just what's happening. We want to give you reasons why things are happening, the context around what's happening. We want to tell you something that will stick with you while you're driving home or making dinner. All Things Considered. Listen every afternoon. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. Next time on The World, crossing the Darien Gap. This wild and mountainous jungle connects Colombia with Panama. Migrants risk their lives in it as they walk to the U.S. from Latin America and the Caribbean. But we also see people coming from China, India, Afghanistan, Congo, Ghana. That includes young people. More than 60,000 children are expected to make the journey this year. Their story on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. America's teens are struggling. Record numbers are reporting high levels of sadness. The CDC says those most affected are adolescent women and LGBTQ youth. How can parents help? We'll look for some answers and share your stories too. That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. The Jacksonville Science Festival is coming up this weekend. Now, this is the festival's 10th year on the First Coast. It first began in 2013 to inspire kids K through 12 and to promote STEAM. That's science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. The festival is presented and sponsored by the Foundation Academy and FSCJ. I got a preview from Foundation Academy principal Nadia Hianidis and their community engagement manager, Tia Unthank. Well, it's very exciting. It is our 11th year. Let's start with that. And uh, we do it in different parts of the city on Saturday, March 4th. It starts at 10 a.m. It goes till 3 p.m. And this year, it'll be at the Jacksonville Beach Pavilion. So you can make an entire day of it, go to the beach afterwards to... And it's always great fun. And this year, we are focusing in on this question called, what is the big picture? The reason that it's this year's question is, ultimately, we think short term. And our kids are growing up in a world where they don't see that the hope, I think, of a future And so the most necessary thing is just to do what's right in front of your face. So we're hoping that families come at the Saturday festival and they get to see what's in the booths. They will be thinking about the big picture, things like why is it important to humans that the earth stays in a good place? Why is it important that our mental health is evaluated and there are tools in our toolboxes to have you see your life, uh, have a future, and how does that happen? This is a community event, and we will have booths being presented by college students from uh, Florida State College at Jacksonville, UNF, Jacksonville University. We also will have sponsor booths by um, JEA, Craton, The Mosh always has a wonderful exhibit. We're even going to have a gigantic planetarium that you can crawl inside of and see a wonderful show about the universe. Really cool. So check out the Jacksonville Science Festival. It starts tomorrow and goes this weekend. It's first at the FSCJ South Campus tomorrow and Friday and the Seawalk Pavilion at the Beaches on Saturday. Our youngest is a foundation student, and she'll be there. More info at JacksonvilleScienceFestival.com. And here's some more good news for your Wednesday. The Tom Coughlin J Fun Wine Tasting Gala takes place tomorrow night, and they've got a few tickets left. So why not consider joining two-time Super Bowl winning head coach Tom Coughlin for his annual fundraiser that brings together wine lovers, gourmets, philanthropists, friends, and local celebrities. 
All profits support the Tom Coughlin J Fund's mission of helping local families tackle childhood cancer by providing financial, emotional, and practical support. Get your tickets now at tcjfund.org slash wine. That's tomorrow night. Well, the Jacksonville Ultimate Women's Expo is coming up March 11th through 12th at the Prime Osborne Convention Center. Their keynote speaker is Fantasia, the Grammy-winning vocalist, actress, best-selling author, and American Idol contestant. It It offers women a wealth of memorable, unforgettable experiences and activities for all attendees. Advanced tickets are only five bucks if you purchase online at jackswomensexpo.com. That includes all makeovers, tastings, celebrity speaking events, shows, seminars, and more. Local author Stephen Labrie has a book signing coming up this Saturday at San Marco Books and More at 10 a.m. He'll be signing both of his novels, A Heart Lies Within Us and Coldwater Creek. Go grab a copy of one or better yet, both. And finally, do you love rock and roll? Well, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts are performing at the Florida Theater this Friday, and we are giving away one pair of tickets for the show. To enter, email us right now at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org and put Joan Jett in the subject line. Win one pair of tickets to see Joan Jett and the Blackhearts at the Florida Theater this Friday. We will pick a winner at random and give them your name you will be able to pick up your pair of tickets at Will Call. I love rock and roll. I know you do too. So email us. And thanks for listening. Thanks also to David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Josh Torres, and Michelle Corum. I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.